Greetings and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and this episode features Econet News, volume 24, issue number 7, July 2022. Quote of the week. Eye-watering gas prices are hitting consumers across Europe. The more cheap, clean power we generate within our own borders, the better protected we will be. UK Business and Energy Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng cited in a Bloomberg article about the UK's record-setting wind auction. Flanagan's Ecologic, the elevator update. Elevators are now being deployed that have no cables. Instead, they are lifted with magnets. They're like maglev trains guided by rails, advanced and controlled with magnetism. For some of us, that's a scary thought. What if the power goes out? Of course they have that figured out. But when the first maglev elevators were introduced, shockwaves apparently reverberated through the vertical transportation industry. ThyssenKrupp is a German elevator maker. It's clearly an innovator, pioneer of the world's first non-cabled elevator system, what it calls its multi-system. In addition to a novel form of propulsion, it, pre it presents a revolutionary design. When a cabin reaches the top of its channel, it can shift horizontally to then come down a parallel shaft. Thus, each shaft can have multiple cabins operating at the same time. This allows for greatly increased capacity with elevators configured more like a circuit or metro system. Let's back up. The first fall-safe passenger elevator was built in 1852 by Elijah Graves Otis and installed and exhibited in the 54 at the Crystal Palace Convention at the New York's World's Fair. His braking system worked and ushered in a movement of elevators. The first high-rises were built in the United States in the 1880s. Land was at a premium and urban populations were growing. Building up was the only option, as long as you had one of Otis's lifts. The first electric elevator was built by Werner von Siemens in Germany. The Maglev elevator was introduced in 2007. These in elevators use a Maglev track in the building, which is embedded with coils to guide the cabins through a moving magnetic field. This is known as a linear drive. A magnetized coil running along these shafts repels magnets located in the elevator cabin, causing it to levitate. The elevators have electromagnetic brakes that engage when the car comes to a stop. The brakes will automatically clamp shut if the elevator loses power. For the past several years, the maglev elevator system has been tested in a test tower in Rottweil, Germany. The facility, called the ThyssenKrupp Testtern, opened in 2017 and is 807 feet tall. Its public visitor platform at 761 feet is the highest visitor platform in Germany. The first building using this multi-technology is the East Side Tower in Berlin, which is due to open in 2023. The premium elevator system costs five times standard elevator equipment prices. One of the great features of the maglev elevators and the multi-system is that they address urbanization. 
Globally, urbanization is on the rise. With ever taller apartment towers, traditional elevator cable systems can only lift cabins around 1,600 feet. Thus, taller buildings require multiple banks of elevators. With magnetic elevators, there is no height limit. A big plus, as more and more people live in high-rises and demand timely elevator service. And computer-controlled and synchronized horizontal service may revolutionize the singular and siloed notion of an elevator shaft. Globally, 55% of people live in cities today. This is expected to rise to 68% by 2050. There's a projection of about 6 billion urbanites then. Efficient elevators are needed to provide for vertical habitation of super tall, greater than 984 feet, and mega tall buildings greater than 1,969 feet. Maglev elevators, with their horizontal shift feature, may play an important role in our efficient ingress and egress of our elevated homes. Think chutes and ladders. The UK's low-cost renewable tender. The United Kingdom's latest tender for 7,000 megawatts of offshore wind has resulted in record low prices, 5.8% cheaper than the last auction in 2019. Tenders are similar to auctions, but use sealed bids. The biggest tender ever, it brings the UK closer to its goal of installing 50,000 megawatts of offshore wind by the end of the decade to achieve its target climate protection goals. The price of offshore wind has fallen 67% in less than a decade, according to Bloomberg. The tender resulted in a price of $44 per megawatt hour, about a quarter of the UK day-ahead power price. The prices were down despite increased costs for steel and supply chain disruptions. Winning bidders included Orsted AAS, Iberdrola, SA's Scottish Power Unit, Vattenfall AB, and a project group including AB Ignitus, EDP Renoves, and NGSA. Part of the tender, Danish company Orsted, was awarded a contract for the world's biggest offshore wind project at Hornsea 3. It is 100 miles off the East Yorkshire coast. The tender offered a contracts for difference arrangement. If the market price falls below this tender's contract price of $45 per megawatt hour, the government will subsidize and pay the difference. Given war in the Ukraine, the UK, and the entire European Union are stepping up their renewables resolve. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has exacerbated an already volatile oil and gas market in Europe. In this instance, the United Kingdom has eased its moratorium on onshore wind farms that has been in place since 2015. Onshore wind and solar were included in this tender, with the cost of onshore wind now about 45% of the price it secured in 2015. To bring all this power to land and homes and businesses, National Grid laid out a plan this past month for a $64 billion infrastructure upgrade. Much of this involves connections to offshore wind farms. National Grid has proposed 15 connection points to bring 18 offshore wind farms to land. By coordinating the distribution of offshore farms, National Grid intends to drive down the consumer cost by alleviating redundancy and inefficiencies, notably reducing the number of pylons and cables needed to bring power ashore. Meanwhile, a Turkish tender for 1,000 megawatts of solar PV 
has resulted in low prices. 3.1 cents per kilowatt hour, $33 per megawatt hour. The deal is based on 15-year power purchase agreements, PPAs. Turkey's Ministry of Energy has allocated 700 megawatts of the one gigawatt tranche, known as the Yika 4 PV tender. The ministry selected two 200 megawatt projects and 10 50 megawatt projects. For the first time, Turkey specified domestic content requirements for the equipment. Agrihoods, urban planned communities. In the United States, food travels 25% further than it did 20 years ago. Freshness suffers, and so does the environment. Agrihoods address this in part. They are neighborhoods that combine food and real estate, farm-centered communities. They embody a healthy, sustainable, farm-to-table focus. Agrihoods are alternatives to regular neighborhoods. Instead of clubhouses, pools, tennis courts, these neighborhoods prioritize sustainable agriculture. They are generally managed working farms, barns double as event spaces, outdoor kitchens feed families. Sometimes there are farm-to-fork cafes and restaurants on site. The cannery in Davis, California, is a noted new agrihood. The site was a Hunt Wesson tomato canning facility. Now its residents are taking pride in how hyper-local agriculture is building a sense of community. The 7.4-acre farm is managed by the Center for Land-Based Learning, a nonprofit supporting agricultural programs for students and aspiring farmers. All 547 homes are solar-ready, providing prospective buyers a pathway to net zero. Agrihoods are also called Agritopias and Agriburbia. Agrihood Living is a website platform with an Agrihood locator, information on featured communities, videos, a podcast, FAQ, all means to plug in. Housing sales at Agrihoods are reportedly brisk. The Urban Land Institute estimates that there are now 200 Agrihoods across the United States. Beyond a place to live, they are the basis for an improvement to the dominant food system. They tackle food insecurity and help low-income communities get healthy, fresh food. Detroit's Agrihood is a project of the Michigan Urban Farming Initiative, MUFI, an all-volunteer nonprofit. What a ray of light. Detroit is known as one of the nation's most dangerous and violent cities. The Muffy Agrihood Project is made up of three acres of vacant land where 300 organic vegetable varieties are now grown. Vegetables like lettuce, kale, and carrots. There's a 200 fruit tree orchard of apples, pears, plums, and cherries. There's a children's sensory garden, an edible garden. The 50,000 pounds of food grown annually is available for free to about 2,000 households. The farm is open for harvesting on Saturday mornings. Detroit's Muffy Agrihood has a broad vision. Its next step will be to build a community resource center with educational programs and meeting space, a cafe, and two commercial kitchens aimed at creating an economic opportunity for residents to be able to sell hot sauces made from fresh peppers and tomatoes and herbs grown on site. Batteries addressing California's heat wave. Bloomberg Green reports that batteries are now substantially shoring up power grids during heat waves and to meet peak demand. The California Independent System Operator, CAISO, annual report presents a table of 2022 summer maximum on-peak available capacity. 
batteries now make up 6% of the anticipated summer maximum on-peak capacity. Last year, the same value was 2.8%. The year before, it was 0.7%. It was 0.1% in 2017, just five years ago. Last summer, the CAISO reported 1.5 gigawatts of utility-scale storage capacity under its control. By April 2022, there was 2.7 gigawatts of connected storage, anticipated to grow to 4.0 gigawatts this summer. The ISO is routinely shifting 6 gigawatt hours, or 6,000 megawatt hours of electricity, and regularly sees 5-minute intervals where all the stored energy is dispatched to the grid. In March, the CAISO system peaked at 28,971 megawatts, and storage was able to provide for 10% of the peak. The 6% contribution compares with 2.2% available from demand response. Batteries also provided more summer on-peak available capacity than wind and geothermal combined. And on July 15th, and for about a half an hour in the early evening, batteries provided more power to the California grid than nuclear. Batteries are coming of age. In addition to the utility-scale storage, by the end of 2021, there are around 62,000 behind-the-meter battery installations in California, providing 740 megawatts of capacity, mostly controlling site loads, but also contributing to the resilience of the grid. Texas has 2,300 megawatts of batteries currently installed, with more than 7,000 megawatts planned to come online by the end of 2023. There, conservation is also making a substantial contribution to cutting peak demand. ERCOT, the Electricity Reliability Council of Texas, reports that Texans conserved 500 megawatts of demand last week in response to a second plea for conservation. On Wednesday, July 13th, demand was forecasted to reach 79,671 megawatts. By 5 p.m., the number had topped 78,370 megawatts. And with summer heat depressing wind capacity, the reserves dropped to below 2,300 megawatts for over 30 minutes. That triggered another call for consumer conservation with the dire warning of rolling blackouts. The result? 500 megawatts in four minutes. ERCOT notes that the calls for conservation have been used more than four dozen times since 2008 to maintain grid reliability. Swiss Pump Storage Hydro It took 14 years to complete. It's being described as an underground water battery. What is it? It's a pumped hydro storage plant in the Swiss Alps made up of two 11-mile-long tunnels connecting two reservoirs at different elevations. The system provides a whopping 20 gigawatt hours of storage. It began operations on July 1st. The system was constructed by Nantes de France. It's located in Finhaut, in the canton of Valais, Switzerland. It costs $2.1 billion. It is one of Europe's largest pumped hydro storage facilities. It is owned by a Swiss renewable energy producer, Alpique, 39%, the Swiss Federal Railways, 36%, Industrial Work Basel, 15%, and Forces Motrice Valassans, 10%. Construction began in 2008 using two different water reservoirs at the Emosin Dam, which was completed in 1974. The power generator is made up of six reversible pump generators with a combined 900 megawatts of capacity. The power plant is located in a cave 
1,969 feet underground between the Amosan and the View Amosan reservoirs. The system's water storage capacity is 180,000 acre feet. The project required the excavation of 141 million cubic feet of rock and drilling of 11 miles of galleries. Sand and high-rise battery innovations. Sand batteries. There's so many forms that batteries may take from conventional lithium-ion to flow batteries to silicon phase change batteries, molten salt batteries, iron air batteries, gravity batteries, carbon dioxide expansion batteries, even buoyancy batteries. So many forms of battery energy storage, and now another, sand batteries from Finland. As Vanadian flow battery expert Matt Harper explained in a recent Flanagan's Ecologic podcast, differences in size, longevity, installation and operating costs, duration, all will define applications. Different chemistries, each will fulfill useful roles. Some will be targeting spikes in demand and smoothing out daily load profiles. Others working away at base demand during peak periods, while others will offer grid ancillary services and end user resiliency. The Finnish company, Polar Night Energy, recently built and began to operate the first commercial sand battery at the premises of a new energy company called Vatan John Kotski located a few hours from Helsinki in western Finland. The system takes excess electricity and turns it into thermal energy, which is stored and then later used in a district heating loop. Its developers say that it's easy to take electricity and store it as heat. Turning it back to electricity is a greater challenge. The thermal energy storage system is made up of a big insulated tank, 13 feet in diameter and 23 feet high. It's full of plain old sand. When heated up, Using a heat exchanger buried in the middle, it is capable of storing 8 megawatt hours of energy and releasing it at a rate of 100 kW. The sand is heated to around 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Polar Night Energy claims tremendous storage efficiencies, that its systems can store heat for months if need be. Sand batteries may constitute very low-cost systems, thanks to their super-low and zero-cost storage medium. A cost of, of about $10 per kilowatt hour is cited. Sand batteries may be great for countries like Finland, where there may be no direct sun for weeks in winter. Sand batteries' long-duration storage may well keep buildings heated cheaply and cleanly through freezing Finnish winters. Two future looks. Polar Night notes that there is the potential to create bulk underground sand storage facilities out of disused mine shafts. And sand batteries in the future may be designed with multiple zones, longer-term heat stored towards the center of the cylinder, shorter-term repeated use cycles closer to the top surface. High-rise gravity storage. More on elevators. Here's an idea from Vienna, Austria, and the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis. Its analysts believe that gravity energy storage systems Using high-rise buildings may be an inexpensive and easy-to-implement form of storage. Imagine using high-rises and their existing elevator systems. By lifting weight up high during off-peak periods, it can be released through regenerative braking during peak periods, introducing LEST, Lift Energy Storage Technology. According to New Atlas, IIASA researchers have evaluated buildings and found a huge amount of pre-built energy storage waiting to be unlocked. 
They claim that all you need is a storage space at the top and bottom of building to store heavy, wet sand containers or other high-density materials. Autonomous carts can shift the loads out of storage and into elevators. Most elevators are already equipped with regenerative braking on descent. In this way, elevated heavy weights can charge a building, readying it for costly peak periods. Naturally, weight may be a structural issue, especially on upper floors. Shared Mobility and Active Transportation Shared mobility, some say, is the mobility of tomorrow. It includes public transportation, buses, trains, light rail and ferries, car sharing, bike and scooter sharing, and carpooling. The average public transit user saves around $10,000 per year compared to, compared to owning a car, while improving local air quality, easing traffic congestion, creating less need for parking, and using less petroleum and lithium. Fully 24% of U.S. carbon dioxide comes from transportation emissions, and within that slice of the pie, over 50% comes from passenger vehicles. Globally, CO2 emissions from transport are 45.1% from passenger vehicles, 29.4% from road freight, 11.6% from aviation, 10.6% from shipping, 1% from rail, and 2.2% from other sources, mostly pipeline energy. So passenger vehicles, especially when there are no passengers, are in focus for reform. Policies to support shared mobility and active transportation, biking and walking, are climate effective. Los Angeles Metro operates the nation's largest clean air bus fleet, plus a growing light rail network throughout Los Angeles. We're pleased to report that it has announced a new active transportation corridor, 5.5 miles of bike and pedestrian paths, along Slauson in South Los Angeles. It is a former freight line that cuts an east-west swath through Inglewood, South LA, and the unincorporated community of Florence, Firestone. The corridor will serve a portion of LA County, which has amongst the highest percentage of residents who commute via transit, cycling, or walking. Fully 19% of households there lack access to a car. The project is a strategic link for mobility and access. The corridor links users to the Crenshaw LAX light rail line, the Silver Line busway, and the Blue Line. It refreshes an abandoned and blighted railway, turning it into a world-class bike and pedestrian path that supports active transportation. The project's estimated cost of $143 million includes new landscaping, hundreds of shade trees, security cameras, street furniture, signage, and improvement to 22 intersections. The City of Los Angeles is partnering and working on zoning changes to orient future development on the trail. It is also planning new parks along Slauson at Normandy Avenue and Figueroa Street. That's it, folks. Thanks for tuning in to Flanagan's Ecologic, where you get the net positive news. We'll see you next time.